Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Leah Leibovitz, Editor-at-Large at Tablet Magazine, co-host of the podcast Unorthodox and Author, join us to discuss projecting American ideas about race on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Mr. Leibovitz will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Leo Lipovitz. Thank you so much for this. Uh, what a pleasure to be here with the Middle East Forum. Uh, Dr. Pipes and the crew, I've been admiring your work for a long time, so I guess longtime fan, first-time bloviator. Uh, thrilled to be able to share some thoughts about this very important topic, and I, I want to begin in a distinctly non-think tanky way uh, by, by telling a very personal story of how I came uh, to, to this whole idea, this whole subject of, uh, of America's race uh, perceptions and, and how they influence uh, those of us in the Middle East, those of us who care about Israel. Uh, I'm a ninth generation Israeli, don't, don't let the accent fool you. Uh, I came here when I was 23 uh, and I got a job at a hardware store is the only uh, thing I could find at the time. Um, and uh, a couple of weeks in, something really interesting happened. I was flirting uh, with a young woman. I'm very open about this. Uh, and the, it matters for the sake of this story that the young woman was African-American and another uh, employee who was there also uh, of, of the same age group, uh, who's also African-American, didn't like that I was doing that. And so one day over lunch break, he just came to me and he did this thing of just like, you know, kind of puffing up his chest and coming at me in this way. Uh, and, but he didn't attack me. There was no physical act involved. And I stood there looking at this because I was genuinely baffled by what this young man was trying to do. Had he tried to start a fight, he would have attacked me, but he wasn't doing it. He was just kind of towering over me and doing a little dance. And so with no intention of malice whatsoever, I looked at him and said, I'm sorry, is this supposed to threaten me? Uh, and the guy baffled, as confused as I was, said, yeah. And again, more out of curiosity than for any other reason, I said, I'm sorry, but like, is your assumption that I'm going to feel intimidated because you're black and I'm white? And the guy kind of started smiling and he said, yeah. And I said, look, man, I'm, I'm from Israel. Like, I'm very new to all of this. Do white guys, does this work? Like, do white guys usually kind of cower back when you kind of do this move? And he said, yeah, it's worked all the time. I'm actually this really big nerd, but all I have to do is like take half a step and people are like, oh no, please don't hurt me. Uh, and it really left an impression with me because it taught me, uh, still very much an immigrant in, that in this country at that time, uh, that the American conception of race is deeply fraught. Uh, onwards to a much more serious note now, but very uh, related. If you'd like to understand everything that's so inherently nuts about the contemporary American conversation about race, it really only takes the following three word sentence. Jews are white. This is something that uh, you hear very frequently on college campuses uh, and in some of our finer self-appointed uh, publications and, and uh, TV and, and radio shows and 
other uh, circles where the uh, intelligentsia convenes. How might we go about addressing uh, this absolutely insane notion? Well, we could begin by insisting that to view the world and its inhabitants through the lens of some creepy 19th century affection, uh, affectation rather about race that excited some of the most feeble-minded Germans uh, and led to a great deal of savagery uh, historically uh, is a bad idea. Uh, we could marshal Martin Luther King Jr. and say to our defense and say that we would rather judge people by the content of their character rather by the color of their skin. Uh, this all is very earnest talk, but it doesn't really tend to get you far with people for whom race and not say poverty or lack of community or debilitating exposure to mind-rotting digital platforms shapes every essence and every thread of the human experience. So we could continue further and argue that the entire category, white, is ridiculous. Go tell your Italian-American friend, for example, that uh, he is now part of the white elite, uh, whereas his great-grandfather might have been among the 11 Italian-Americans lynched in 1892, which is why we have Columbus Day today. Uh, you could try these objections all you want, and they don't get you very far. So what you have to do is stop and explain uh, what it is that Jews are. Uh, are we a religion? Sure. Are we a nation? Yes. Do we share genetic traits? Offer us dairy and you'll find out the hard way. Do we come in all shapes, sizes, and skin colors? Yes, which is why you could go to the Slat al Azama Synagogue in Marrakesh, or the Beth Yaakov Synagogue in Geneva, or the Ohelea Synagogue in Hong Kong, and see faces that look wildly, widely different, all praying in the same language and in the same fashion. What are we then? Uh, for the answer to that complicated question, I wish to turn to the unquestionable source of all human wisdom in the world, the United Nations, the never erring UN, uh, which hired a very good anthropologist by the name of Jose Martinez Cobo to help it define um, what makes a people indigenous. And here's what he had to say. I'm reading from his text. To fit the bill, people and nations should display one or more of the following. Occupation of ancestral lands, common ancestry, a shared culture or religion, and a shared language. By all of these metrics, uh, and by all the available science and sciences at our disposal, from archaeology to history to theology, even DNA tests, Jews, if they are, if we are anything, are the indigenous people of the land of Israel from which they might have been exiled, uh, but to which they always and shall always return. Now we're getting to the core of the problem because what we have here is a double whammy, a double threat. By thinking correctly about Jews as the indigenous people of the land of Israel, uh, we muck up both the ludicrous race politics that dominates so much of the attention and the energy here at home and the anti-Israeli, anti-Semitic violence over in the Middle East. So naturally, uh, it makes perfect sense that our enemies would wish to tie both of these ideas together. And they have the perfect academic platform to do it with the idea of intersectionality, meaning that every group of oppressed people is by necessity tethered and intertwined with other uh, oppressed minorities. And therefore, all you have to do is somehow shoehorn uh, Israelis into the 
widely understood, though perfectly idiotic category of white Americans, and therefore you have your uh, theory of everything. Uh, this is why Linda Sarsour, who by the way, was totally not jettisoned from the Women's March because she is anti-Semite who led an anti-Semitic organization that uh, persecuted Jews, but rather because as we learned from the New York Times uh, the other week, because it was Russian bots who sabotaged her good intentions or moose and squirrel or whatever they believe it is. Here's Linda Sarsour in her own words. I quote, you cannot be a feminist in the United States and stand up for the rights of the American woman and then say that you don't want to stand up for the rights of Palestinian women in Palestine. You either stand up for the rights of all women, including Palestinians, or none. There's just no way around it. This idea that uh, you are comfortable in portraying Israel as part of this uh, massive uh, global face of oppression uh, and therefore have to reject it is sadly an idea that is uh, making the rounds in Democratic Party circles. Here, for example, is Congressman Jamal Bauman uh, just the other year. Whether it's the infringement of human and civil rights of Palestinians living in Sheikh Jarrah, the violence against those praying in the Al-Aqsa Mosque during the holy month of Ramadan in East Jerusalem, my heart, says Congressman Bauman, my heart is breaking for people around the world experiencing oppression and hurt. Uh, and if this wasn't enough of a virtue signal, uh, he also added enough in a tweet, enough of black and brown bodies being brutalized and murdered by Israel. Uh, this ironically happened uh, during a week in which Israel was under uh, constant missile uh, attack from Hamas, which took the life of uh, an Indian woman who is a caregiver to an elderly Jewish woman, as well as of a young soldier whose family came from Yemen. Uh, those were two black and brown bodies uh, murdered by the anti-Semitic enemies of Israel. So let us be very clear so we can turn this into a conversation very soon. Israel isn't America. Jews aren't white and Palestinians aren't black and brown people. Judaism is an identity that predates the idea of race, predates the idea and reality of America, predates the sin of slavery, predates the idea of nations, predates Christian and Muslim faiths. And if you want to go ahead and be reckless and ignorant and racialize uh, these debates, please do not then be shocked to discover that anti-Semitic violence and rhetoric and sentiments and physical attacks in this country, in the United States, are at an all-time high. And so I think America here has a very, very clear choice. You either stand for safety and for peace, at which point you commit yourself uh, to fighting anyone uh, applying these murderous attacks uh, on innocent people for no other reason except for their choice to live peacefully in their indigenous homeland, or you commit yourself to murderous and idiotic kabuki theater and watch as this moronic talk uh, of, of race and Israelis being somehow implicated in these beliefs flames the fires. Thankfully, Israel knows exactly how to defend itself, but we're even remotely, if we're even remotely serious about America being a power and a player in the international community, we have to resist this madness with all our might, uh, which strikes me as a great point in which to turn this into a conversation. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much. The first question is from Hal Tar. 
Uh, can the idea be countered by pointing to the fact that Arabs, who are darker than the people who originally settled in the area of Israel, invaded and colonized Israel in uh, 634? In the case of the Middle East, the colonists were, a were of a darker complexion than the original inhabitants, a situation that is the opposite of areas colonized by Europeans. Well, you know, the, the, this this is a wonderful question. Uh, the other week uh, when when we lost and, and bid farewell to Her Majesty the Queen, uh, the Queen, I had the opportunity to talk to one of my friends uh, who is a Saudi uh, scholar and gentleman. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously the, the question of the record of the Britain's record uh, as, as a colonizer uh, came up in the conversation. Uh, and my friend just started laughing. He said, you know, I actually think that the Brits were lousy colonizers. You colonize people and you don't make them adopt your religion and your language. What was wrong with these people? They did it all wrong. Saudis did it just right, which is why vast swaths of people in this region then refer to themselves as Arabs, uh, despite coming from very different origins. Uh, it, it is such a uh, wonderfully fraught and, and often amusing territory uh, to get into. Uh, I personally have little uh, interest in it. Uh, I'm not a scholar of this particular question, uh, but if you choose to ignore this, uh, this long lineage of colonizing efforts and focus on the return of one very small group of people to territories with which they've had an undisturbed connection, spiritual, emotional, physical, uh, throughout millennia, there's a name for that obsession, and that name is very, very old and very, very poignant. Thank you. An anonymous attendee asks, how can we get through to people, especially on college campuses, when even such a learned person as Condoleezza Rice identifies the Palestinians with the civil rights demonstrators of the 1960s and the Israelis with Sharif? Uh, I, I think many people... On this, uh, on this call uh, may not like what I have to say, but my answer is why the heck bother? I believe, and I say this with sadness, uh, I say this as someone who's given two decades of his life uh, to the academic pursuit of happiness. Uh, I believe that these spaces are completely lost for us. Uh, I believe American universities uh, are irredeemably stupid and I believe that anyone associated or affiliated with them in any way, shape, or form, and of course, there will be exceptions to this rule, as there always are, uh, but I believe has, has chosen to commit to a uh, radically divergent uh, worldview that is actually not interested uh, in any of these realistic, factual-based arguments uh, that is uh, serving a bizarre cult uh, and that is uh, impossible to, and that it is impossible to reform it. Uh, on the other hand, I believe uh, just as clearly and just as passionately that a vast majority of, of Americans, normal Americans, which to me is the highest honor and designation, um, see the absurdity of these questions, uh, really, or, or these assertions, without any problem. They. We live now in, a, in an era in which we thankfully no longer have to rely on the, you know, dementedly biased uh, media organs of the, of the one party state like the New York Times to supply information uh, about the world. People 
have their own way of, of communicating with and learning about Israel. And I think when a majority of these people hear these claims, they say, wait a minute, uh, why are you calling these people by these categories when it actually seems to make no sense? Why are you discounting so much of the things that we see going on? And, and why are you trying to shoehorn everything into your obsession, which increasingly feels really freaking creepy? Because that's what it is. I've learned long ago that the most poignant uh, kind of notion in American contemporary American politics is, is Freud's notion of projection. Uh, those who scream racism the most uh, are doing so because they're deeply, deeply immersed in the pursuit that they understand very well. Um, to be deeply racist and disgusting, Here's the thing, maybe I'm just saying this because I'm an immigrant here, but I deeply love this country and believe in the inherent goodness of its people. I don't think the majority of Americans care for this mau mauing bullshit. I think the majority of Americans want practical, uh, kind of clear-headed solutions. And when they see Israel attacked for the umpteenth time by this insane uh, terrorist organization, and then they see people on the left saying, oh, we have to support trans rights, which means supporting Hamas, they stop and say, wait a minute, what? That makes absolutely no sense. So my uh, hope for the future is very rosy, just as long as we don't look for the penny under the lamplight of academia. And Jack follows up on this uh, point, but don't you worry that the these college-age students will, he uses a different word, uh, will be the captains of industry in 10 years and it'll spread. Look what's happened at the New York Times. Sure, uh, I, I do worry, <laughs> I, I, I worry every day. But uh, at the same time, uh, I think that uh, it's a weird thing about a free people. You could be the captain of whatever it is that you want, unless you take actual steps uh, to curtail uh, people's basic civic liberties. And you could argue that we're already seeing sort of like the blossomings of this. Uh, they're just not gonna go along with your nonsensical plan. This morning, uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, perusing the outrage machine that is Twitter uh, and seeing a comedian who is very, very, very outspoken against religion, against tradition, uh, against anything that reeks to him of conservative politics, which is everything, uh, accusing uh, everyone who did not come up to see or show up to see his film that opened this weekend uh, of only not doing so because they were racist and homophobic. Um, here's the great thing. Yes, you could control whatever industry you want. You could put out whatever product you want, but the majority of people are just gonna walk away from it because it's gross. And at some point, this is gonna course correct. At some point, there are going to be captains of industry. There are going to be service providers. There are going to be platforms and institutions and industries that realize that they cannot sacrifice the entirety of, of human creativity on the altar of this insane and inane ideology. Uh, and, and we're on the winning side, by we I mean Jews, Israelis, and, and everyone who loves them. We're on the winning side of this debate. Israel in this way is, is fascinatingly the canary and the coal mine. I believe that so much of the hate is, is kind of directed towards Israel because Israel represents the sort of tethering or, or sort of like interlooping of everything that this movement that we're now seeing hates. It's about nation and nationalism. It's about family, because that's what Jews ultimately are, one big family. And it's about religion. 
Uh, these are the three institutions that uh, you absolutely must weaken, if not completely uh, destroy, before you could begin to push these, these radically solipsistic theories, before you could begin to exercise power, before you could begin to, to sell uh, these digital platforms that thrive on atomization. Uh, we are the worst enemy, but here's the thing. We're on the side of, of normal people. Normal people always win. Well, that is good. <laughs> Larry Greenberg says, or asks, the vast majority of American Jews by the idea that they are white oppressors, is it even possible to disabuse them of this uh, belief without undermining their commitment to political liberalism and the impossible uh, to achieve tikkun olam? Yes, first of all, uh, Larry, thanks for this question. I, um, I wonder about that. I, I think you definitely have a point uh, that many people have, or many American Jews uh, have bought in uh, to this lunacy uh, and who sometimes somehow believe uh, that they are, if not white, and at least, uh, you know, culpable because they could pass as white. By the way, try telling your gay friend that he doesn't really have the right to speak because he could always pass as straight by pretending to like women. It's such a monstrous uh, and, 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 and callous notion. We would never, never, ever say this about any other group. We say this about Jews because, hey, we can. Even if you don't want to go through any of the, uh, of the reasonings <clears throat> that, I, that I just um, went through, I suggest a very different uh, experience. The experience that I suggest is to say to Jews, like, okay, well, uh, we could argue about whether or not you're white but we can't argue about whether or not you're Jewish. Uh, and if you believe yourself to be such, um, I'd like to introduce you to a fantastic document, which is every bit the moral founding document of this nation. As my friend, Dr. Rabbi Ari Lam likes to say, as the constitution is our founding political document. And that document is the Hebrew Bible. And the Hebrew Bible has been the blueprint for literally every single serious civil and human rights uh, crusader in this country. When Sojourner Truth stood uh, before what is now known as the Bully Convention, uh, standing in a room filled with hot-headed racists who wanted to physically hurt her, she said, I am like Queen Esther, and I have destined to come here and save my people. When Martin Luther King was talking about being to the mountaintop, he wasn't talking about the Rockies. All the language of the civil rights movement, the language that marshaled everyone from Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King to Barack Obama to anyone who does any serious work on this issue comes to us directly, directly from the tongues of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. If we are indeed serious about race and justice and racism and all these notions, that we hear so much about, we already have a fine, stirring example of how to go about and address it. And if we're serious about this commitment, which we share with every serious American person who came before us and sacrificed their life for this goal, then we have to look soberly and honestly at the people pretending or purporting to do this kind of work today and say that what they're doing is a gross thwarting and bastardization, and in fact, the negation of everything that the Hebrew Bible teaches. The Hebrew Bible does not teach 
a war of race against race. The Hebrew Bible does not teach that power is the ultimate goal of any human exchange. The Hebrew Bible does not teach that in order to avenge the sins of the past, we must now go uh, and shame the descendants of perpetrators, real or imagined. The Hebrew Bible teaches forgiveness. It teaches cheshbon nefesh, or accounting of the soul. It teaches teshuva, or repentance. It teaches community, working together and building together. So I will say to these American Jews, fine, if you're really serious about liberal values, I'd like to introduce you to Frederick Douglass. And by the way, he really liked a certain book that I'm sure is laying somewhere on your shelf. How about you read it for a change? Thank you so much for that. Uh, Daniel Ben-Ami asks, why has what passes for the left, the left in America today become captivated with identity politics? Because there's nothing else. Because uh, the, the need to pray, to worship, uh, to be, uh, you know, to look upwards at some heavens uh, is a deep fundamental human need. And if you assiduously and systematically reject the much, much better and much more ancient faith system, uh, systems into which you were born, you need some new religion. You need something new to believe in. You need some organizing principles or else you're left staring at the abyss. Enter this thing. What we're looking at right now is every bit a religious faith uh, and, and not at all uh, a social movement in the way we understand it. Look at the iconography. We're toppling statues. We're taking a knee. We're washing the feet of the poor. This is a religious movement. The problem is that it's a very bad religion because it's a religion that A, hasn't had time to figure out what it actually means. B, has absolutely no channels for forgiveness. Once you've been canceled, that's it. There is no return for you. And see, and most importantly, a religion that refuses to acknowledge that it's religious. It tethers itself to things like hashtag science, because it says that if you don't believe this, and what, what you're actually negating are the observable principles of reality. They're not even willing to debate that there is another side, which is why, again, projection, they're actually sort of dangerous zealots. And they look at Jews, uh, a, a faith group that, for better or worse, uh, has gotten quite good at questioning uh, mainly itself, uh, but also everything else around it. Uh, and it troubles and, and, and kind of uh, riles them to no end because that's a much, much more sustainable uh, way to live in the world and therefore a threat. So why is it so popular? Because it's invigorating and these people are left with nothing else if there isn't this, this fire burning. I, I applaud them for their fire. I love them for their energy and their zeal. I just wish uh, that there was any way to, to make them kind of understand the, the spiritual error that they're committing. And if there is a way, it's not by uh, bombarding them with facts. It's not by saying, well, actually, do you know that in 627, so-and-so did so-and-so in the Middle East? Rather, it's by, it's by opening the heart and by starting these conversations and by showing them uh, what Israel, what Judaism, what we really mean uh, when we say these things, uh, which I think would have a real impact. And I'm very thrilled to see that that's actually happening. It's beginning with people of faith, but I think it will spread uh, out there and, and change a lot in this country. Hopefully so. All right, Karis Ria asks, has any American foreign policy towards the Middle East actually been influenced by these ridiculous notions about race? Specifically what? Well, that is a question. Uh, thank you. Hey, Karis, great question. Um, that's a question for much, much um, 
you know, wiser people uh, for me than me to answer. And, and uh, in, in, the, in the virtual, uh, you know, halo of, of Dr. Pipes, I'm, I'm not even gonna take uh, any kind of, I won't dare taking a stab, uh, but here's what troubles me. What tro troubles me is that this currency seems to be passed down from, from the crazed ideologues onwards to people who are now, uh, quote unquote, more moderate uh, Democrats. And it's only a matter of time before we start seeing uh, these notions being sort of implemented straightforwardly. I will say uh, that if you looked at the last, uh, last months of the Barack Obama administration, uh, the refusal to veto uh, all sorts of uh, horrendous uh, anti-Israeli resolutions at, at the UN, uh, the refusal uh, also to, to understand the, the grave danger uh, presented by the Iran deal. Um, I think those occurred, those did not occur in a vacuum. Uh, I think they certainly are intertwined with this way of thinking and, and seeing the world. And I'm afraid that you're going to see more and more and more of it in the Democratic Party, which I say with sadness, uh, not that I have any other great love for the other party, uh, but uh, no longer is a, a viable place for anyone who cares about Israel, or cares about Jews, or about being Jewish. All right, thank you so much. In our last minute here, can you please sum up what, what we should do, what you think should happen, what, what we can hope for? Um, well, in the spirit of, of, the, of the season, uh, as it is the day before Yom Kippur, I, I will just say pray. Uh, ask for forgiveness, uh, but in all seriousness, uh, I think what we should do uh, is refuse this collective intoxication that has overtaken our, our body politic, that has overtaken our culture, uh, refuse uh, to see the world through this thwarted, distorted lens of racism. Understand that systemic racism definitely exists, it is definitely a problem, definitely something that we should address, but that the way to address it isn't uh, to invent a uh, kind of a kooky theology and then seek to implement it uh, in quarters foreign and domestic. We should have a much more serious conversation. We should have it together, not, uh, not at each other's throats. Uh, and we should have it again, uh, knowing that the Jewish people have bequeathed to the world a tremendous document uh, that speaks very candidly and movingly about how to achieve uh, this type of justice. And may we all be so fortunate uh, as as to follow its script. Absolutely, thank you so much. Uh, before we go, can you please tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? Uh, tabletmag.com, or if you are inclined to listen to podcasts, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, Unorthodox, uh, the according to God and iTunes, the world's most popular Jewish podcast, uh, is there for your peruse. All right. Thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Mr. Lipovitz, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for our viewers. Please. Oh, we will not be having our Israel Insider this week on Wednesday, uh, but please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.